You can take a seat. Good evening. My name is Justin Lopez. I'm the executive director of For the City, which is essentially the local missions department of the Austin Stone. And we've been around about seven and a half years. And we came out of this conviction that a church shouldn't just be in a city and it shouldn't be against a city. And we definitely shouldn't look just like our city, um, but we should be people who are for our city. Um, that's where that For the City Network name came from. And, and what we're trying to do for the first two weeks of the summer preaching series is, is give you a little bit more information about what the Bible says about that. And so we are honored to have Trip, Pastor Trip Lee here today from Atlanta, originally from Dallas, Texas. There's not that many people from Dallas today. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot more this morning. Um, but we are honored to have him. He's come all the way from Atlanta um, to, to teach the word because he's, he's, a, he's a man that also trusts and believes that churches are built for their cities to be instruments of the gospel, to be declared and demonstrated. And, and so he is a rapper, pastor, teacher, poet, father, husband. He's a busy guy. But we want to welcome him with an Austin Stone welcome uh, to our body as he teaches us the word. Thank you, guys. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Um, well, I, uh, I'm a little bitter that Dallas didn't get more love at this service. The other services, there was a little bit of love for Dallas, so I'll try not to hold that against you. I may just take out the most edifying parts of the sermon to punish you. <laughs> but I'll try to trust God with that. Uh, I'm excited to be here to, to hang with y'all and, and to preach God's word, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we uh, thank you again for your goodness. God, we thank you that uh, we don't have to be slaves to fear, that you have freed us. Father, that it's for freedom that you've set us free, uh, that there's new life in Christ that has real expectations, I mean, has real implications right now. You know, we're not just waiting until heaven to see some of the fruits of what Jesus has done. We get to experience it even now, and it's a sweet time when we get to sit under your word and you speak to us and your spirit works in our hearts. So, Father, we pray you'd work in us now, God, and that we would be spurred to live lives of love. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to talk about Love, loving God and loving our neighbors. And I want to start by talking about uh, my kids because I like to talk about them. And I miss them right now. So the further you are away from children, the more you like them sometimes, you know. Um, don't tell my wife I said that. Uh, I have a, a, a four-year-old son named Q. I have a two-year-old daughter named Sayla. Uh, and because I've been a father for the very long period that is four years, uh, when I have friends who are about to be new fathers, and they want to know a little bit, and they ask me, then I get to be a pro for a little bit. I'm like, sit down for a second, young fellow. Let me tell you a few things <laughs> that I've learned in my four years as a father. And uh, the interesting thing is, I think all guys who are about to be fathers feel this thing where <clears throat> they're about to have a human being in their care, and they realize that they don't know anything about children. And it's you know, I think we can blame this partly on society for never asking young men to babysit. They probably shouldn't. We're not responsible. <laughs> but that just means that dudes are fathers and they've never really seen a child up close. 
So they say, hey, Trip, help me out. I feel unprepared. I feel anxious. What do I do? What do I need to know? What are the most important things? And what I try to do is just help to demystify it and just talk about the basics because uh, it's true. It's pretty easy at first. One, God gives you nine months to get ready. So if you wasn't ready, you got a nine-month ramp-up period. It doesn't feel like a getting ready for uh, the mom who's making a person, but the dudes have it easy. We're just getting ready, getting our minds ready. And then when they get here, they don't do anything. They're not going to run away from you. They won't even be awake half the time. Uh, they only eat, sleep, and then get rid of what they ate. That is the only thing that they do. So there's no need for any high-level skills or knowledge. I just try to demystify it. It's really easy just put them somewhere to sleep where they can't roll off and injure themselves. <laughs> Change their diaper. And the great thing about babies, unlike our wives, they tell us when something's wrong. They cry. So we know for sure. We don't have to ask and wonder, is something wrong? Nothing. No, for real. Nothing. Like, but come on. <laughs> nothing. Um, they let us know when something's wrong. It's really easy. Just Avoid tragedy. That's the very simple thing when babies are first born. And it may seem overly simplified, overly simplistic. And of course, there's more to it than just that. You know, there are particular cries you want to pay attention to. You got to get a baby on a feeding schedule, all of that stuff. But really, it's still true. That's the cliff notes. It's really easy. Just avoid tragedy, okay? And it reminds me of what Jesus says when uh, the Pharisees ask him about what the greatest commandment is, and that Jesus sums up the entire life the entire Christian life with one word, and that word is love. And that Jesus kind of gives us the cliff notes of the entire life, all that's expected of those who follow God in a very brief way. And here's the thing that I want you to know, based on what Jesus says, love is the only thing that you should ever do. Love is the only thing that you should ever do. Let's go to Matthew 22. Open your Bibles with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. While you turn, I'll give you a little bit of background right here in the Gospel of Matthew. The Lord Jesus has already been teaching and doing miracles uh, for a while. He's already into Jerusalem with his disciples. The cross is, is getting near. And right before this little section we're going to read, uh, some religious leaders had just asked him some questions to try to trip him up. So if, if you're not familiar with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're these two groups of religious leaders who didn't like Jesus. So after the Sadducees had just tried to trip Jesus up with questions and it didn't work, here's where we are in Matthew 22. I'm going to start reading at verse 34. This is what God's Word says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's God's word. So just after the Sadducees had tried to trip him up with questions about the resurrection, and it says they were silenced. So if you pick a verbal fight with somebody and you shut up in the end, that means you lost. 
And so the Pharisees see that the Sadducees are lost, and so they huddle up like, man, what should we do? That didn't go so well for them. What should we do? And they gather together, and they come up with a question to try to, to test Jesus. Now, it's possible that some of them, maybe even the ones saying the question could have sincerely wondered, but by and large, the Pharisees are not sincerely trying to learn from Jesus. This is political maneuver, and they want to make him look bad. Right? They want to ask him a question that's hard so that they can undermine his credibility so that he looks bad. You know, almost like you, you've been doing this and people say you're this and that. Well, prove it. Answer this question. Almost like when you try to log into an account you made a password for like 10 years ago. And the, I feel like the account, like real accusatory, are you sure you tripped? Where did your mom go to first grade? It's like, <laughs> did I choose this as a security question? I don't remember that. But it feels accusatory, like you say you're this person and prove it. And these are the kinds of, this is the kind of question the Pharisees are asking, trying to to test him. Now, for a moment, I just want us to consider how foolish it is to gather up in a circle with other humans and to try to stump God. And this is God in the flesh. They're going to test him, which is laughable. I mean, Jesus created everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. It's very funny. You thought in a few seconds you'd come up with a good question that would stump God in the flesh. And it didn't work. But the question they ask is, hey, out of all the commandments, which one is the greatest one? Trying to find a way to trip him up. And, of course, Jesus answers uh, in a brilliant way, in a convicting way, and even answers more than, than they ask in terms of what the most important commandment is. And I think the thing we see really clearly from his answer is, once again, love is the only thing you should ever do. That love is the only action you should ever commit. All the love is the only deed you should carry out. You were created to love. And following God means love is a thing we're striving for at every single moment of the day. And we shouldn't be surprised, of course, because God is love. So like my parenting advice to say love is the only thing we should ever do, it may sound a little simplistic. So I'll flesh it out as we go. But here's the amazing thing. If you're ever in a place where you're like freaking out and anxious and wondering how to follow Jesus in a particular situation, right? if you look in your city, there's so many needs that people have. There's so much you could do. There's so many books you could read. the Bible studies you could go to. The presidential election seems like strange and stranger. What do I do as a Christian? Well... Jesus is going to say, hey, once we've trusted in Christ, our marching orders are pretty simple. Love God and love your neighbor. Me and my wife, sometimes we feel anxious. We just moved to to Atlanta to help plant a church in a needy neighborhood, and we're getting to know new people. We want to love our neighbors as people we want to spend time with. What, What do we do, God? Well, it's good to know our marching orders are pretty simple. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything else is detailed. So let's talk about those in depth a little bit more. Let's start with loving God. Number one, we need to love God. That's difficult to figure out what that means sometimes because we're used to thinking about love the way our culture talks about it. And the way our culture talks about love doesn't really apply to God. The way we interact with love often in our culture is through romantic comedies and R&B songs, and that's not really going to work. When we start talking about love for God, uh, it's this affection for God. This passion in your, in, your, in your soul for God, but it's not just a feeling. It's, a, it's an affection that shows up in a commitment to him, right? So it's this affection for God and commitment to his interests, to his glory, to what he values. 
And so I want to read this again and keep that definition in mind as we read it. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. There are uh, 613 laws in the Old Testament. 600 plus times God, you know, different things God told his people to do. Why is it that Jesus would call this one the greatest one? Well, I mean, if, if what we know in Scripture is true that God is the center of the universe, that you and I are not the center of the universe, and that all things were created by him and for him, then of course the greatest thing God would call us to do would be to love him. There's nothing greater that we could do with our bodies and our minds and our times and our resources than to love God. There's nothing more right and proper for us to do, to use our bodies for, than the love of God. Of course that would be central. You know, our world thinks loving your neighbor, being nice to other people, that's a good thing. But with Christianity, the loving God part, that can be kind of tossed to the side. It's not as important. But Jesus, even before he mentions loving our neighbor, he mentions loving God as the thing that's of prime importance, the foundation for all other things, loving God. And he doesn't just tell us to love God. He tells us how to, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We would normally read those heart, soul, mind, think of them as maybe three different categories, like, okay, with my heart, that's the um, fuzzy place for Valentine's Day, okay, with all my soul, I don't really know what that is, um, with all my mind, that's when I'm thinking and stuff, and Jesus pointing to all these just very different things, but really, these are overlapping categories, so the heart in the Bible is not a fuzzy place for Valentine's Day. It's the, the uh, control center of your whole being. It's where everything comes from. It's where your thoughts come from, your emotions, your desires, your decisions. All of it comes from your heart. So to also say soul and to also say mind, these things are overlapping one another. And Jesus is trying to drive home. You're not to love God with just a little bit of yourself. You're to love God with all of yourself that there is no part of who you are as a human being that should not be devoted to the love of God. You're to love God with everything, with all that you have. You know, sometimes we want to love God with just a little bit of us, kind of halfway, like, God, you can have my Sunday mornings, you can have Wednesday for small group, the other days, that's me. Or, God, I'm willing to turn away from these sins, but this one right here is too hard, let me hold on to this. Nobody else knows about this but me, let me hold on to this. And this might be a a good time for us throughout this week to think about whether or not there are areas in our life that we've sectioned off and refused to submit to the Lord Jesus. Areas where we've loved ourselves more than we've loved God. God has called us to love him with all of us. God doesn't want a part of you. God wants you. He wants you to love him with all of you. And that's that first and greatest command. And somebody may say, okay, why would God command us to love him? Is it because God is needy? Like God needs us in a room singing songs to him so he'll feel good about himself. Like when you fish for compliments, is God just fishing for compliments? Or is it because God is egotistical and he just, you know, he's, you know, praise me or else? Well, the reason God commands us to love him is not because he's needy, not because he's egotistical. It's because he is actually the center of the universe. 
and the right object of our love and affection. And because he's good and his glory is above all else. And also because he loves us. Right? We are so prone to devote all of our love, to love all kinds of other things with all of our heart and mind and soul. We'll love money with all of our heart and mind and our soul. And we'll love friendships with all of our heart and our mind and our soul. And we'll build our lives on things that will ultimately fall out from under us and destroy us. And God loves us enough to say, don't do that. The right place to put all of that hope is on me. When my son... When I, when I try to teach my son to, to love me and to trust me and to obey me, it's because I love him. He makes really bad decisions at four years old. He thinks it's a great idea to climb on top of his dresser and to jump off and try to fly like Batman, who doesn't even fly. <laughs> and I'm just trying to convince him, like, hey, I promise I love you. You got to trust me. And it's not because I'm an egomaniac and I just want his attention. I trust you, Father. I just want that. It's because I love him. And even though he's immature and stubborn, I'm not just going to give up and let him destroy himself. I love him too much for that. God loves us too much not to command us to turn away from those things that would destroy us rather than loving him. It's a good thing for God to command us to love him. And, you know, this fits right in with what we've already talked about. The only thing you should ever do is love. You should love God. So Jesus acknowledges loving God is the, the greatest commandment, but that doesn't mean that no other ones matter. He also, he, he's going to point to another one that he says is like it. So number one, we should love God. Number two, we should love neighbor. I usually like to have very clever points, but this passage is so simple. Love God and love neighbor. When we think about loving neighbor, that may seem like a happy command for some people. Like, yes, I would love to love neighbors. Uh, my friend Aaron, who's here with me, he's an extrovert, and he just loves meeting new people at all times. And so if we, like, go to a new place and we both have met this person within the last five minutes, I forgot that person's name and they forgot my name, and him and Aaron are best friends. They're planning vacations together. <laughs> Somehow they got pictures from five years ago in their phone. I'm like, how did y'all go back in time? He loves being in rooms with lots of people. He loves small talk. I personally don't like small talk. It's a necessary evil to get to a real conversation. You know, I like to talk about stuff. And so for an introvert, like, is there any other introverts in here? You might not want to draw attention to yourself, but <laughs> I just wanted to check. That's always a surefire introvert joke. Uh, nah, but... Not even just introverts, for all of us, it's easy to just kind of get wrapped up in whatever we're doing and not really want to pay attention to, to what's around us. Even just because we're busy, we could go from class to class, from workday to workday, from appointment to appointment, from kind of thing to thing, day to day, with so much stuff to do that we're so wrapped up in that we never really have to think about anybody else. And here's how we can trick ourselves, say, but I've read my Bible and I know a lot about God, and I've prayed, I'm good. I love God. Jesus is going to say, no, 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 there's something very much like it. So I'm going to read again what Jesus says about loving our neighbor. He says, in a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are not two completely unrelated commands to love God and to love neighbor. If you say you love God but you don't love your neighbor, I don't believe you. And Scripture says, you're lying. Love is 
for your neighbor is a necessary spillover from loving God, right? Because if, if we're made in God's image and you love God, you should love images, right? But God makes these images. We look like God. We're made in his image, in his likeness. We bear his image. I mean, you see my son. He looks like me, right? He, his nose is kind of like mine and his face shape is a little like mine. His smile is kind of like mine. You know he's mine. In the same way we were made in God's image, we're like him. And when we see others made in God's image, we should love them too. So if you came to my house, you said, hey, Tripp, I love your mom. And then you were burning all the pictures of her around my house. You'd be like, I don't think you love her. You seem to be very disturbed by her image all throughout my house. And yet we try to pretend like we love God, and then with, we're either oblivious to and ignore those made in his image, or we don't love them as we should. We just can't say that. It makes no sense. Loving God and loving neighbor are very closely tied to one another. Earlier this week, I was reading a, a book called Life of God and the Soul of Man, and, and all the talks about this is kind of the power of love, how, how this passion that, that forms in us this love it shapes who we are in a lot of ways, depending on the object of what we love. And he talks about like friendships, where you're real close to somebody, y'all hang out all the time, and y'all start taking on one another's mannerisms, you laugh at the same stuff, you finish each other's sentences, you dress similarly, you start to become like each other. And he says this, comparing it to our relationship with God, the true way to improve our souls is by fixing our, our love on the divine perfections that we may always have them before us and derive an impression of them on ourselves. He's saying basically the way to grow, the way to better yourself is to look at God a lot, right? Because he's the great one and we become like what we admire and what we love. When I was a little kid, I wanted, I loved to watch Michael Jordan dunk and he would just fly through the air and I'd be like, man, I want to do that. So I would play basketball and I didn't know I was only going to be 5'8", but I, I really wanted to do it. I loved it. I admired it, and I wanted to be like that. And I, was, I also loved Michael Jackson. Couldn't dance, though. I also loved Jay-Z, and I was a rapper, so one of them worked out. <laughs> but what we love and admire, we find ourselves striving to be like. You know, so, so when we love God and we gaze at God, it makes us more like him, and we kind of, uh, uh, this love that he has for his creation begins to be built up in us as well. If we try to love our neighbors, or we try to love God without loving our neighbors, you know what's going to end up happening? We're just going to be these jerks that just kind of show up at church and read stuff and know stuff, but are kind of hypocritical and self-righteous. This is like the Pharisees. They know stuff. They intend to try to love God, but don't love people at all, and by ignoring people, of course, don't love God. And if we try to love our neighbor without loving God, there are also a lot of mistakes we can make. For one, you know, if loving someone is... Uh, if loving someone is a, is a holy affection for them and a selfless commitment to their good, you can't seek someone's good if you don't know the source of all good things. So when you try to love someone and seek their good, if you don't even know what good is from the source of all good things, you're not going to be able to do that. You can't really love your neighbor without loving God, not in the fullest extent. And sometimes when we try to love people without loving God, we make them our God. We put them at the center of our lives. We build everything around them. And it falls apart in that way. These things are closely tied together. So somebody may say, okay, who's my neighbor, though? 
is exactly what the scribe said when Jesus tells this story in Luke. He tells it, he's like, okay, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan. Y'all are familiar with this story? Y'all are familiar with this story? Right, the, this guy gets attacked by robbers, left for dead. A Levite walks by, leaves him. Priest walks by, leaves him. And then a Samaritan walks up. Now, to the people who are listening, Samaritans are the worst of the worst. And the Samaritan walks up and he cares for this person at great risk to himself, at great sacrifice to himself. So these people who seem like enemies, Jesus says, no, they're neighbors. And the Samaritan is the hero of the story, basically making the point, everybody's your neighbor. Right? He expands this term neighbor to mean everybody, every human being created in the image of God, which means we don't get to just exclude people and decide they're not our neighbors and not worthy of us loving them like God has called us to. Even if people are different than us, everybody's your neighbor. Black people are your neighbor. White people are your neighbor. Latinos are your neighbor. Asian people are your neighbor. Rich people are your neighbors. Poor people are your neighbors. Your coworker that gets on your nerves is your neighbor. That lady at the DMV who gets on your nerves and is rude to you and you're just trying to get your license is your neighbor. You've been called to love her. Our gay friends and co-workers, those are our neighbors. Our transgender friends and co-workers, those are our neighbors. Everybody is your neighbor and you've been called to love them. We don't get to just exclude anybody from that. Everyone is our neighbor. It's good sometimes to stop and think whether or not there's anything in our hearts, there are particular people groups or, or particular people, individuals in our lives that we've decided are not worthy of our neighborly love, that we've kind of uh, pushed them out of that picture. Maybe because they're different than us. Maybe because they're harder to love. Maybe we just don't know how to love them. Whatever it is, God has called us to love everybody that we come into contact with. And that doesn't just mean saying hi, but this kind of affection uh, and seeking their good. So we should ask ourselves if there's any kind of heart issues that we want to wrestle through with people we're excluding from being our neighbors. And Jesus doesn't just tell us to love our neighbors. He tells us how. He says, love your neighbors as yourself. It's a high bar. I've heard this preached where people will say, okay, this means that if you are going to love anybody else, you've got to love yourself first. It sounds nice. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is assuming we love ourselves. It's, it's just a fact. We, we love ourselves. We are committed to our own good and our own self-interest. It's just a thing that, that we do. You've already loved yourself in many ways today. Taking care of yourself, you, you took a shower, you brushed your teeth this morning, Lord willing. When you're sick, you go to the doctor, right? You want to take care of yourself, make sure you're doing good. When you're about to cross the street, you look both ways and make sure you don't get hit by a car. You're looking out for your own self-interest. When there are opportunities, you try to succeed. When you choose a spouse, you don't pick a bad spouse on purpose. You try to pick a good spouse, right? You try to seek your own good. It's a very natural thing that we do. And there's nothing wrong with that very natural self-interest. It's part of what allows us to survive. But Jesus is saying the way you look out for yourself, do that for your neighbor. Love them as if it was you. So that when we see somebody, for instance, lacking something that they need, we should be as bothered by that as we would be if it was us lacking what we need. There's this uh, homeless girl in, in my neighborhood that I, that I pass in the car all the time. 
and uh, she'll be standing there, she'll be asking for cash, and I always try to stop and talk to her. And, um, from time to time, be like, hey, are you hungry? My house is right down the street. I'm going to just get some food, bring it back. I brought it back one time. She was like, no, I don't want it um, because she knows I, I'm a Christian, and that makes her feel weird for, uh, for whatever reason. But what I've been praying is that the Lord wouldn't allow me to be desensitized to the fact that she's in great need even because she's difficult, that I would be as bothered by the fact that she's out there as I would be if it was me. Right? That even though I may not feel those physical hunger pains, that I would feel the emotional pain and the burden of, of somebody made in the image of God who's out here without the things that they need. My prayer is, is that that's what God would do in my heart and that that's what God would do in all of our hearts. If you haven't noticed, our world is a mess and it's broken and people are hurting, people who don't have the things that they need. I mean, many of us are hurting in many different ways. You know, there's some of us who are struggling through difficult family stuff right now. Maybe some of us who grew up in neighborhoods is basically like a a war zone. There there are those of us who may be struggling in different areas with mental illness or with depression or with different amounts of things. Our world is a mess. And when we see people in different areas, I wonder how we think about them and whether or not we try to love them or just walk past them. You know, so what do you do when you just see an older man walking across the street? Maybe he's crossing the street and you're trying to go past the stop sign and he's going really slow. What's going through your mind? Are you just thinking, get out the way, sir? When you see somebody sitting next to you on a plane or in a waiting room somewhere, you know, what what comes to mind? Or better yet, a a homeless man on the street who's, who's asking for money. I mean, do you just ignore them, step over them? What we normally do is we just kind of go through life seeing all kinds of people and are kind of oblivious to them and walk past them as if nothing's happening. Anytime there's a lot of something, we begin to undervalue it. We see people all the time, especially in cities. There's just a lot of people. And I think we forget the great value of every single human being because we're made in God's image. You know, when Scripture even talks about the problem with murder, the problem is that's the image of God you just murdered, right? There's great value. When I was in high school, I went to Italy with, uh, with my friends. Not sure why. Shouldn't have been able to. It was like 15 to 16. We didn't even appreciate it. We were sitting in the Sistine Chapel. Everybody's looking up at the ceiling in awe at the beauty of the art. My friends and I are in the corner cracking jokes and freestyling or something. Taking flash photography even though we're not allowed to. You can ask me later about how I got kicked out of Sistine Chapel. That's another day. (laughs) But we were bored. We'd already seen so much cool stuff in Italy. We were sleeping on this, the the beauty of it, the historical significance of it, uh, what it was depicting, who, who made it. And we were sleeping on how significant it was. And we do the same thing with other people where we where we overlook their value because we're just kind of bored and desensitized. But anytime you're sitting next to somebody, that person is the most amazing thing that's ever been created in the history of the universe. What God did in creating human beings is, is the crown of his creation. God is the one that made them. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. They have great value and significance. There is no person who has zero significance. All of us are extremely significant. And so if we're going to love our neighbors, we have to be able to think about and understand the fact that they're created in the image of God. And there's nothing, no life circumstance, even no sin that takes that away from a person. It strips them of that inherent dignity. That doctrine of the image of God is a really, really important one. So our goal should be to see people the way God sees them. 
so we can interact with them the way that God does. And you may say, well, how would we know what, what God would do? Well, there was that one time where God put on flesh and lived on earth. Jesus lived a life of great compassion and mercy. He saw people in need, and he met those needs, right? He, he fed the 5,000, and he saw sheep without a shepherd, and he was teaching even to the point where he laid his life down that we could have eternal life. Jesus lived this life of great compassion and love and mercy that we can learn so much from. All throughout Scripture, I mean, God is going to call his people to be compassionate. I think about Isaiah where, where God is rebuking his people saying, basically, all these rituals and stuff you're doing to me, I don't care about it because your deeds are not keeping with what I've commanded. And, you know, he says, your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Right? He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You know, he's saying... You're trying to worship me, but your deeds are ridiculous. You're trying to love me and not love neighbor, and I don't want to hear it. There could be times when we can come into a room like this and sing to God, and our words ring hollow, and it's a stench to his nose. Because we only love him in word, not in deed. You know, the clearest, most immediate evidence of our love for God is our love for those he created. And what does it say to a world when we say, hey, we know this compassionate Savior, yet that compassionate is completely absent from my life? It doesn't say much about our Savior. I want to encourage you as you think about loving neighbor. You know, I want to specifically emphasize paying special attention to those who are broken and forgotten. Widows, orphans, homeless, poor, depressed, ill, etc., you know what I'm saying? These, these are people who, because of whatever brokenness, the, the, their dignity can feel like it's been taken away. And I want to encourage you to find ways to specifically love those marginalized neighbors. And here's uh, how I want to begin to close. is what we do. Uh, you know, some tips for how to think through loving our neighbor uh, better. Because this compassion, of course, shouldn't end just thinking about it or just feeling it, but it should show up in action. So here are just a few things I want to encourage you to do as you think about trying to love your neighbor better. Number one is just pay attention, right? Often we, we miss beautiful image bearers all around us, the most beautiful creations all around us, and our hearts are so filled with ourselves that there's really no room for compassion or love for other people. It's almost like when a man sees a beautiful woman and he doesn't see anybody else in the room and he's bumping into stuff. That's like us, except we're just gazing at ourselves. We got to look beyond ourselves to be able to see others and love them. You know, pay attention. What are the greatest needs in your community? Right? Are there local ministries you can kind of serve alongside? After I preach, one of the pastors is going to talk about some of the, uh, some of the stuff that y'all can do right here. I mean, pay attention to needs and opportunities to serve people. Number two, get involved. Right after paying attention and gaining awareness, get involved. Move your schedule around. You know, busyness is not an excuse not to love your neighbor. You know, we make space for everything else in our lives. We schedule appointments and do stuff. But we don't put loving people in our calendar. It takes intentionality. Get involved. Number three, be present. Be around. You know, people 
It's easier for people to believe you love them if you're actually around, if you spend time with them. Scheme about ways to build relationships. Maybe you work out at the YMCA instead of Planet Fitness is stealing from you every month anyway, charging you a trillion dollars, right? In our neighborhood in Atlanta, there are a million little committees that people can be a part of and neighborhood meetings. And people in our church will just become part of these little things so they can spend time around people. Sometimes they don't even care that much about the cause that's organized around, but they get to understand people's needs better and build relationships with people. People believe you care when you actually spend time with them. It, it helps people to love others better. Number four, I want to encourage you to pray. I pray that God would give you eyes to see people the way that he sees people. Pray that God would meet, uh, meet the needs that you become aware of. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for the people that you see. That's a great way to love others. Number five, be open-handed and willing to sacrifice. Whatever you have in your hands, money, time, talent, resources of any kind, you know, be ready as you pay attention to sacrifice things in your life so that you can serve other people. My wife and I, when we moved to the West End in Atlanta, there were some people who said, why would you move to that neighborhood? That neighborhood's a mess. It's the oldest neighborhood in Atlanta. It used to be really nice, and it's been really rough. And uh, there's violence there. There's all kinds of stuff there. Why would you go to that neighborhood? Uh, and it seemed like a ridiculously tremendous sacrifice to other people because we could live in a better home. But what we and the, the other folks with the church that we planted are thinking of, these are the kinds of places and the kinds of people that are often just kind of forgotten and nobody really cares about that much. And we actually like this neighborhood and we like the people there. So we want to move there and look for opportunities to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I want to encourage you to have the kind of open hand that when opportunities come up, even opportunities that will cost you something, that you'll be willing to. And number six, I want to encourage you to evangelize. Our greatest need is Jesus. Everyone you meet, their greatest need is to know Jesus. Their, their soul, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? The soul is of eternal importance. And in all of those things, the amazing thing is, you know, Jesus has been very simple in how he's told us, you know. The only thing you should ever do is love. I, I think that sums us up well. Jesus says in verse 40, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's saying loving God and loving neighbor, everything hangs on this, literally. When you walk in my house, there's a hook and there's keys on it, there's jackets on it, and dog leash on it, random stuff that my son threw on it, there's stuff hanging from it. And if you pull that hook out the wall, all of it just falls down, right? It's hanging on that. Well, love, it, love of God and love of neighbor is that hook that all the rest of the law and all of the prophets all hangs on this. It, it hinges on this. This is what it's on. This is the foundation. This is the anchor, loving God and loving neighbor. And I just want to encourage you to let that change how you think about your obedience this week. Think about how you gauge your life, what you're giving your time to. Right? Instead of just thinking, I could check a thing off, think, is this me loving God and loving neighbor? Right? Am I going to spend time in Scripture? Well, how can I best love God and love neighbor? Right? Am I going to go to this particular thing? How can I best love God and love neighbor? Let that be what fuels your obedience this week as you think about God. And the amazing news is, even though we don't love God and love neighbor that well, God knew that and he sent his son Jesus to love us, right? That Christ came to earth, he did it perfectly. And then because we had sinned and we'd been separated from God, Christ died for our sins. He paid for them. 
There's no thing left for us to pay. We're not trying to love God and neighbor, right, to try to earn some kind of place with God. Jesus has secured it for us, and if we trust in Christ, we, of course, can be saved and forgiven of our sins and given his spirit, and then God works that in us, helps us to love him, helps us to love neighbor. And that's really good news. If you're here today and you're not sure if you know Christ or not you've trusted Christ for salvation, I want to encourage you, even now, you can let go of your sins and you can cling to Jesus. Love is the only thing that you should ever do, and God, by his grace, will help you do it. Amen. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, that as we can spend a little time thinking about you and what you'd have us do, that we don't have to guess. You've already told us clearly in your word, and we pray, God, uh, that you would help us to obey it, Father. God, it's very easy for us to, to think about these things and just leave really discouraged and guilty and shameful, Father. But the good news is Christ has already erased our shame and he's erased our guilt. And, Father, we're so grateful that you haven't only commanded us to do things. You haven't only pointed out our weakness, Father, but you've given us your spirit, Father, to fuel it, God, to empower it. So, Father, we pray that we be blown away by your love for us. Father, and as we look at you and your love, it would produce in us a deep love for you and a deep love for our neighbors. And God, we pray Austin Stone would be the kind of church, Father, that doesn't only sing songs to you, Father, but loves their neighbors well. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.